0: This week on AARP, The Perfect Scam.
1: I realized that not only was this true that I had the proof, but everything, everything I was taught to believe about what we did at Michigan Hematology Oncology was a lie.
0: This week, we're bringing you the story of a massive Medicare fraud scam that touched the lives of so many people. To help us wade through the universe of Medicare fraud and scams, we brought in a renowned expert this week. Peggy Sposato is joining us. She was with the Department of Justice for many years and uh, worked on the, the Medicare strike team. Peggy can tell us more about it. Peggy, I have a quote that says you single-handedly save taxpayers billions of dollars in your time with the Department of Justice. Uh, first of all, thanks for doing that.
2: You're welcome. Yeah. Oh, yes, I did. I did do that.
0: <laughs> you are our Medicare expert because this stuff gets a little complicated. Set the stage for us a little bit. What does Medicare fraud mean, really? I mean, if you can sort of give it a definition.
2: Let me can break it down, because when they talk fraud, they're talking uh, fraud claims, fraud in essence. It's uh, any, any false, fictitious, fraudulent claim that's submitted to Medicare is Medicare fraud. What drives that, or part of what drives that, is why it's it's being listed as such. Sometimes it's because it's not medically necessary services. Sometimes it's non-rendered services. Sometimes it's kickbacks. But all of these things all amount to false claims.
0: And who is responsible for the fraud? We've got anybody from someone like uh, who we're talking about in our show Uh, or could it be nurses or, I mean, who's involved as far as, like, the bad guys go?
2: Basically, everybody. uh, Fraud is very impartial. I mean, it's committed over all provider types. Some are more frequently identified because of the egregiousness of the claims. So I I would say over the past 10 years, probably the most egregious types would be durable medical equipment fraud and home health services. And the people who are doing that... um, are on the street, say the nurses that would be doing home health, they may not know that what they're doing is wrong because if they didn't have some specific piece of it, um, the ones in durable medical equipment, normally they aren't even medical personnel. I mean, they could be janitors, for God's sake. But all of these individuals, all these provider types and the people who are working at them are capable of doing the fraud, but who actually is making out the claim is the one that you're going after.
0: All right, up next, part two of our three-part story. Last week, we told you about Angela Swantek, the oncology nurse who left a job interview at one of Fada's clinics in distress, shocked by the lack of basic safety procedures for patients and a nagging suspicion that something much darker was taking place. She filed an official report with her allegations against the doctor's practice, but in a written response over a year later, she claims the state of Michigan decided nothing was wrong. We also told you about Robert Soberet, the retiring car factory worker who spent two and a half years under FADA's care, only as his body continued to deteriorate and his life unraveled. This week, we'll introduce you to a young oncologist who is starting the next phase of his career at FADA's practice, only to learn the awful truth of what was happening behind the clinic doors. On a cold winter day in January 2012, a year and a half after Angela Swantech left her interview at Dr. Fareed Fada's practice and filed her allegations, Dr. So Mongle went in for an interview at the clinic. He was working in Florida at the time, but his wife had a new position in Michigan, and he was looking for work near the hospital where she'd be working.
3: I was pleased that he had so many offices, very well-organized uh, impressive offices, and apparently I could be busy as soon as I start.
0: After a long day of touring Dr. Fada's offices and meeting staff, he finally met Dr. Fada that evening in the office kitchen.
3: He's eating pizza, and he seems to be, you know, just... He doesn't seem like the president of the big company. He looked like a... Just like, you know, just like us. Just like one very... One busy, tired doctor. I just don't feel a big difference between... A regular doctor and him—that's my
0: impression. Doctor Mongley got the job right away and made plans to wind down in Florida and start with Doctor Fada's office later that year. But before he ever started, Mongley ran into an odd situation. Fada seemed to disappear.
3: I I was not able to get a hold of him. He didn't give me a start date. I have a, you know, I have a contract without a beginning date. This is—it's very, it was very bizarre.
0: Mongley was supposed to be part of an expansion to Fada's practice. However, he came to learn that he was actually replacing another doctor who was quitting. And he hadn't left yet. So Mongley was left waiting for a start date and wondering if he was signing up for something he'd regret.
3: And this was just, you know, just a dishonest uh, game that he played. And still, I, I was kind of stuck. I
0: had to work for him. But Dr. So Mongley had signed a contract, and he eventually got a start date in August 2012. He liked the location and what he'd seen so far, but he was wary after Dr. Fada's brief disappearing act.
3: In so many ways, that made uh, make me very aware of things around me. So, you know, my, aunt, I was, my guards were up. I was very careful, like this guy. Something is not right on the days that I start working. So I think that's, in the, to what, in the end, that serves me well.
0: But it was in the days and weeks to come that Dr. Mongley would come to learn just how not right things were. As it turns out, Mongley had just scratched the surface of Dr. Fareed Fada.
3: So I figured out that there are some locations that patients were receiving chemotherapy, and there was no physician present or a nurse practitioner or any coverage present.
0: In Mongley's experience, a physician should be on hand at any locations where patients were getting chemotherapy.
3: That was not happening in one or two locations. So that was the, the conflict started immediately. Well, you know, within the first one or two weeks, like I asked him, who's there in those locations? And he was not able to answer me, and he looked at me, and then literally, I think, three or four days later, my assignment was different. I was actually sent out to the locations that I will never, ever see him.
0: Mongley now found himself in a new job where he had zero interaction with his boss or his boss's staff. But the trouble was just starting.
3: And it it was something absolutely, absolutely uh, bizarre. Well, you know how if you're in a group practice, the purpose of having a group practice is to have some type of quality of life, right? You just you can't work day in and day out. Just, you know, somebody can't call you in the middle of the night. You have to answer. You cannot be answered for every day, single day. So you want at least weekends off or some days off. When you're in group practice, you can find out your pager uh, through the answering service to the rest of the guy who's on call.
0: But according to Mongley, Dr. Fada never did that. Any patient under Fada's care stayed under his care. If there was an issue or problem at any time of day, Fada would respond. I
3: was about to see a patient. I was looking at the chart, and I could see the nurse sitting next to me paging him about the patient that I was about to see. Oh, wow. Because that that was the instruction that... For all his patients, all the calls go to him 24-7 all the time.
0: The only way Dr. Mongley could explain it was that Fada was completely dedicated to his patients and his work.
3: All of us have some level of type A personality. I thought he was over the top. I thought he was, this is the kind of cancer doctor I want. I will. All, this doctor will always be accessible day and night. Because you, know, you don't have to explain your story to somebody else. You always got to get a hold of your own doctor. So I'm like... This this guy is phenomenal, but I don't think I can do this. It'll be very hard. In the end, it'll come back and bite him because he's going to get too tired. He's going to miss things. He's going to mismanage things. So I had a meeting with him. I said, you have to sign out your pizza. Uh, we need an answering service to arrange that. And that was one of my requests.
0: That seems like a big step to take as like a new employee to go to your new boss and say, hey, you got to take a break. <laughs>
3: So, so, so you know you see amount of tension already building up. Like this guy just, stopped. I'm the guy, you know, I'm the right uh, guy. You know, I'm the guy who's writing the checks, yeah. and you're asking for this, this. You're asking to change the practice pattern that's been successful for you know a long, long time.
0: If Fada was missing out on family time, that might have been alleviated by the fact that his wife was the chief financial officer, and she was actually CFO. So not a, I mean, that's a big position and one with a lot of oversight. I would imagine.
3: Yeah, so I think she is in charge of all the financial aspects of the
0: practice. So Mongley has his patients, Fada has his, and it stays that way. Mongley is unable to convince Fada to let him cover his patients, and then Fada stops communicating directly with Mongley altogether.
3: He communicate me through nursing staff or other you know, intermediary, always through the OK. He would send a message to that, and he's asked Dr. Mongley to do that, rather than call me and say, hey, so do that. No, he doesn't do that anymore, because he... He's trying to distance himself from me.
0: But despite Fada's efforts to keep his patients to himself, there were rare occasions when Mongley would interact with Fada's patients. Monglay starts to notice some odd things.
3: Why is the patient getting seven cycle of chemotherapy when the standard of care six? Why is there one more cycle? So, and then, you know, uh, the answer would be, well, you know, one of the cycles there was a reaction or something happened, so he's trying to make up for it.
0: Monglay is convinced Dr. Fada is way more aggressive than he would be when it comes to treatment. He talks to other oncologists in the area.
3: All of them know that, oh, you know, Dr. Fada is very aggressive. Hmm. This is how he does. And it's not like an unknown thing. It's known to the whole community. He will take patients that other doctors stop treating. Uh, You know, so he said he never give up.
0: Along the way, Mongley presents another idea to Dr. Fada. He asks about submitting the practice for a national oncology certification program.
3: And he said we already have that certification, like, to my face.
0: <laughs> but mogley knew for a fact that Fada's practice was not certified.
3: How can you lie to another doctor who knows about this as much as you do? I felt very, very insulted that he, I think the way he probably was saying that this is it, and then let's not talk about it. I don't really care about your opinion, and I'm lying to you. You know that. I know that. And what do you want to do about it? That's the way I felt. Like, oh my God, how do you like straight up lie, you
0: know. This all takes place less than a year after Mongle joined the practice. In June of 2013, less than 10 months after starting his job, he submits his resignation. His last day is set for August 9th, 2013. But in those last weeks before Mongle leaves for good, Dr. Fada takes a vacation going overseas to Lebanon.
3: Usually Dr. Fada never took Time off. He never takes vacations. I think the whole time I was there, he was out for vacation for I think one day. And this is the second time he has a family. I think he's... I don't want to say about his details or his family. He has a family medical emergency that he has to leave the country. He went back to Lebanon, out of no, just like last minute. So uh, finally, he had to leave the pager with me. Uh. This pager. There is no. Just mind you, there is no paging system. That's a physical, like, like a black pager. I don't know if you've ever seen the doctors carry back in sure.
0: day. Oh,
3: yeah. That's, that's, that's what he carries. You right. know, my pagers come to my cell phone. Uh, he, he actually holds a pager, and he has to give it to me, so I carry that.
0: With Fada on vacation and his pager in hand, Mongley is finally summoned to consult with one of Dr. Fada's patients who had fallen and broken her leg. With Fada gone, Mongley starts reviewing her charts.
3: Before I went in there, there was some mention of the patient receiving some type of treatment in the note. We don't know what it is. I'm like, oh, what is the patient receiving? The patient was... And then I went and talked uh, to the patient. He was, she, she was wearing a cast. And she said she just received chemotherapy the same week before she ended up in the hospital. So, why did she receive chemotherapy? So she said, I have multiple myeloma. And I was a little bit baffled because, you know, the the... The reports that were a few months old seemed like she has a very, very mild form of disease, that she will not really have active disease for a decade or ever. You know, many patients have this problem.
0: With his faith in Dr. Fada at an all-time low, Mongle is suspicious of the fact that the patient is getting chemo for what he describes as a mild condition.
3: Uh, something is not right. Something, you know, I just uh, I probably was acting really odd around her. I didn't see much, but I was, I can't really describe. I was just, you know, uh, uh, finding difficult, finding words to talk to uh, talk to her because I, I knew something was not right.
0: The next day, Monglay goes to the clinic early and prints out the patient's charts.
3: So I don't have all of it, but I had enough, and my jaw dropped what happened. He saw a few months ahead, and then, and he did or three bone marrow biopsies already, which was really excessive. You don't have to do bone marrow biopsies. You can follow with blood and urine tests. And then nothing really came about. But at one point, he started her on, uh, a few months before he started on this expensive immunoglobulin, immune supplement uh, that cost, I think, about 4000 a month or something uh, on her without any good medical reason.
0: Hmm. Mongley is disturbed, but still willing to accept that perhaps Dr. Fada had a good reason for the test and the medication, but he's unable to accept what he sees next in her charts.
3: He told her that she has active multiple myeloma. And I knew the test right before that because it's in the electronic medical records and some people have scanned in already. But she doesn't. Nothing really has changed. He just lied to her. It seems like she was he was priming her to do this for several months. But he was planning to put her on this chemotherapy for the rest of her life. No, I'm talking about giving chemotherapy, not an antibiotic, chemotherapy to a patient who doesn't have cancer. I might be the first doctor who ever saw this. I a no, 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 this is not possible, this is not possible, this is not possible. And the next day I went and told the patient. I think in deep down inside she probably knew that something was not right. And she needed to hear from another doctor, I think. Because she has no resistance, she doesn't say why, this? He said, okay, doc, I'll do that.
0: Mongley realizes he has to act, and act quickly. I
3: might be violating some uh, rules, practice rules uh, by looking up the patients that are not mine. Uh, I decided to look into A to Z, and, uh, and then something clicked.
0: Mongley decided to hone in on one particular medication that seemed to show up on many of the patient files. From what he could tell, close to half of the patients receiving the drug didn't need to be on it.
3: Because this is the only thing that appeared to be easily provable on my end, because you just can't say in medicine this and that, and you you, you need a a real evidence.
0: He brought it up with some of the nurses and then asked one of them to confront Dr. Fada about the medication.
3: He said, okay, let's cancel them. So that's the admission of guilt. The only thing I needed is that if he agreed to stop a treatment just because, you know, the staff said, no, this this might not be required. If I believe believe that this is helping my patient, I'm gonna fight with the insurance company, I will fight with everybody. No, he stopped it in immediately. So it's just the admission of guilt. That's all I needed.
0: For Dr. Mongley, that was the last straw. He approached the clinic's office manager, George Karace.
3: I presented to our practice manager who oversees seven clinics what my concerns are and I presented to him.
0: We spoke to George Karace several times before he agreed to do an interview with us. Not that he didn't want to. I get the sense that he's been burned before. The aspects of the story told in the press didn't match his experience. He wants to make sure we get it right. Hello? George, it's Will Johnson at AARP. How are you?
1: I'm fine, Will. How are you doing? Not bad.
0: George Karace actually had experience as a whistleblower previously in his career, years before working as a sleep technician. He'd only been on the job a few weeks when he noticed some billing irregularities and reported it.
1: Two, three years later that the FBI actually came to my door.
0: Oh, that, that long. Uh, okay. Did they get busted for it?
1: Yeah. Essentially, they came to my door and they wanted to know more information about what had happened. Uh, because apparently it uh, it, it continued, and the amount of money that we're talking about uh, escalated.
0: Eventually, he went to work for Dr. Fried Fata.
1: Well, I worked, I think it was a little bit over two years, and I was hired as the office manager.
0: In this role, he worked closely with Dr. Fada almost on a daily basis. I had
1: to report at the end of the day, um, you know, the fires that were brewing, the issues that had to be dealt with.
0: Karachi could see from the minute he arrived at the Rochester Clinic for an interview with Dr. Fada that business was booming.
1: You would think that it was some sort of ski lodge or hotel, um, a grand hotel. It had 50-foot ceilings. It had grand pianos, artwork. So it took me aback at the opulence of the center.
0: Unlike the cancer center, George comes to find out that Fada doesn't seem interested in the trappings of wealth, nothing that would mirror the income generated by the clinic. George tells me Fada and his wife drove late-model Chevy SUVs, wore modest clothing, and owned a nice home that was sparsely furnished. But the cancer center was a different story. So you saw all of this, and you met him and worked with him, and he was clearly successful. Would you describe him as someone who treated his staff well? Was he a friendly guy?
1: I wouldn't go that far. What I would say is that he was a very controlling individual. And, you know, he controlled people uh, with... Uh, not just his policies and procedures, but he also controlled people with the use of cameras and microphones strategically placed in all of his centers, but not just to keep track of his patients, to keep track of his employees, to make sure they were saying the right things and they were in the right places. You know he didn't want nursing staff to go to the billing, he didn't want Billing to go to the front office, he didn't want the doctors to mix and mingle. they
0: were to stay where they were assigned. George was also the person who helped Fada search for new staff members, and he discovers that his new boss only seems to hire inexperienced medical staff, often just out of school who've never worked in a clinic outside of their school training. In fact, Fada scrutinized the photos for every candidate in the clinic with a fine-tooth comb and chose every new hire personally. It was in this closely watched, controlled environment that George, much like Dr. Mongley, starts to see some odd things happening as well.
1: Two nurse practitioners give their, their uh, notice to resign very short time in between one another, less than a month. And they were critical to the practice. And so what I did is, um, you know, I asked one of them why they were leaving. And she said, well, it's just quality of life issues. And, and I went to Dr. Mungley to his office. And I asked Dr. Mungoy, were you aware that your staff is, uh, that your nurse practitioner is leaving and we have another one leaving? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, I asked him, are you leaving? And he said, yes. And I said, can you tell me why? And he pointed up at the ceiling and he said, and he whispered to me, cameras. And that's when he said, let's go down to the patient resource library. And that's when he told me that everyone is leaving because of what was discovered and that Dr. Fader was giving chemotherapy to patients without need, that he was taking patients off of hospice and putting them on chemotherapy, that he was taking patients without disease and putting them on chemotherapy basically until the last day of life.
0: And when he pointed up to the ceiling and said cameras, I, I mean, clearly he's suggesting that maybe he was under your conversation could be surveilled or was being. Right,
1: the, the entire office and, and uh, is was under surveillance and there was cameras everywhere everybody got used to them we didn't we didn't realize how many microphones until later
0: what was that like when he when, when, when mongley then told you well you know there things are going on here that shouldn't be going on was it must have been a chilling moment for you or you also had your own suspicions no
1: no no when he told me that i i simply didn't believe him because I, I listened to him and I said, Well, <laughs> I said, it's, it's in my mind, I already know that Dr. Mungley had long time concerns with Dr. Fada. Many people had disagreements with him.
0: But the conversation stuck with Karanche. He decides to do his own investigation of sorts.
1: First thing I looked at is the patient consultation to treatment ratio. So that is how many, how many treatments did a patient receive per doctor, right? And then compare that with Dr. Fada. So with the other doctors uh, out of uh, every consultation or 10 consultations there was approximately 3 out of 10 that would receive treatment but with Dr. Fada it was between 9 and 10 so if you're seeing Dr. Fada you're getting treatment it's almost automatic
0: he doesn't stop there though he talks to an attorney that helped him years ago in George's first whistleblower case
1: I talked to him I called him on the phone And I explained what I had, explained my concerns. And he said, you know, George, this this sounds very serious. I appreciate what you have to understand. But what you have is sounds serious, but could easily be refuted.
0: Frustrated but undeterred, George goes back to Dr. Mongley.
1: I explained to him that what you said took me aback. And uh, I wanted to know if you could elaborate on what we discussed. And he pulled out his cell phone. And on his cell phone, he had pictures of patients that had been disfigured and had terrible reactions to intense chemotherapy. And he said, this is part of that. And I said, well, can you share that with me? And he said he wouldn't. And I asked him, why? Why wouldn't you want to share that with me? He said, because, George, what you know, you'll be responsible for. Hmm. You know, And uh, you're better off not knowing this stuff.
0: It's almost like too much and of a burden to be able to live with. It,
1: it really is. And he, I, 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 you know, I didn't know what his thinking was. I mean, I certainly didn't want to work for a clinic that was doing this, but I wanted to make sure that in fact, this was real and it wasn't something that was a smoke screen.
0: Finally, Mongley tells Karache about a nurse in the practice who tried to take action.
1: He explained that someone, a nurse in the hospital, caught him, caught Dr. Fada after reviewing a patient and patient's chart. And confronted Dr. Fada uh, with respect to his use of chemotherapy and the reaction the patient had when they were admitted in the hospital. And Dr. Mungley explained that this nurse who confronted him were were approached by Dr. Fada's attorneys. and Dr. Fada's attorneys had threatened her, threatened her career, try to, in other words, to stop her from talking about what she discovered and silenced her, essentially.
0: Dr. Mongley does tell George about a specific drug that Fada was prescribing frequently. George takes that information and goes to someone he knows and trusts, a nurse in the practice.
1: I explained to her that um, I was made aware of a drug that we use that we may not be giving appropriately. Do you know anything about the drug called IDIG? And she, I remember her, this is very clear in my memory, she went blank and her face turned like to stone. And she became sorrowful and then began to cry. And she said, to me, are we in trouble? And I said, in trouble? I I don't know if we're in trouble or not. (laughs) I'm not qualified to judge you, but I I really would like to know what what you discovered. She said, well, I found within a week, uh, I looked at some of the, the the the, uh, schedule that Dr. Fada had on patients from consultation. And out of the 40 patients that were scheduled for IDIG, 38 didn't need it. 38 didn't qualify for the drug because they didn't have the symptoms that that, uh, would warrant using this drug. And uh, so myself, and she was talking about herself, and uh, another nurse confronted Dr. Fada with those names of the thirty-eight patients, and uh, she said that Dr. Fada relented and said, "Okay, I won't do this anymore."
0: The other nurse had given her resignation, and George wanted to talk to her next.
1: And I asked her um, uh, if she was still considering leaving, and she said, "Of course I am." And I said, "Well, well, I, I just assumed that it was the IVIG issue that, but isn't? Uh, but Dr. Fada had." had agreed not to do this anymore. So I guess the problem is solved. I mean, if that's the issue, and she said, no, George, you don't understand. IVIG is just the tip of the iceberg. I realized that not only was this true that I had the proof, but everything, everything I was taught to believe about what we did at Michigan Hematology Oncology was a lie. In addition to that, The patients didn't know at all what was going on. You know, they were sitting, I could see them getting infusions, and I thought to myself, you know, which patients needed chemotherapy, which ones didn't need chemotherapy, which ones were going to be harmed today if I didn't do something about it right away? I didn't look at the center anymore like a place that people came to be healed. I look at its center, as a burning building.
0: George Karace now confronts the fact that he might be the only one to stop the burning, to be a whistleblower once again. He knows he has to do something more than just confront Farid Fada. He has to go higher. I'm back with Peggy Sposato. She is retired now, but for many years was with the Department of Justice and the Medicare Fraud Strike Force team. Walk us through it uh, in a little more detail. It, it, how does it work? I mean, you, you basically are charging Medicare for something that a patient doesn't need in some instances?
2: Or doesn't get or doesn't receive.
0: And in home health care, you mentioned, uh, give us an example of what that might be.
2: There are situations where the beneficiaries are receiving home health and they're not eligible for home health. They're, they're not homebound. But They don't know that they're any part of this, so it has to go back to the home health agency that fills out the form, files the claim, and says at that point that uh, this person needs the service. And sometimes they make up the information that they put on the claim.
0: And what is home health? What what could that entail, like somebody coming to your house, a nurse to take, to visit you? You
2: get a nurse and an aide, or sometimes physical therapy, speech therapy. uh, Those are the most common.
0: And so in a lot of cases... As you've pointed out, there may be people in the middle of all this who have no idea what's going on, but somebody is committing a crime. Exactly. The impact on a person and their health care coverage, if Medicare fraud is committed, um, can you explain that at all? Is that is are there repercussions there of bad care?
2: The problem with it, the effect on it, is non-existent. I mean, because they don't even know what's going on, and. We've never, to my knowledge, we've never done anything to the beneficiaries that were involved, even when we, in one, with one exception, which I can touch on in a second, but for the most part, the beneficiaries, they're the vulnerable victims of these frauds. They didn't, they didn't start it, and they're, they're not part of it.
0: And in some cases, as in the one we're talking about on The Perfect Scam, it could be something awful where someone's getting medication or treatment that they don't need, but it could, as you mentioned, also be something where somebody's just not getting something, and maybe they didn't need it in the first place. Or, or I mean, there's right. also there's well, a. I'll, I'll
2: give you, I'll give you an example of yes. that. Uh, in Miami, when we first started looking at some of the home health cases, I had gone out and was talking to this woman, and she lived on the third floor. And I was asking her all these questions about, you know, how she managed to do this and that. And she said, oh, they told me to do this. I said, who told you to do this? So she proceeded to tell me about this home health agency coming. And I said, what do they do when they come here? She said, they clean my bathroom, they clean my kitchen. They're very nice.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Had nothing to do with medical.
0: Right. Peggy, we're, there are so many people out there that I'm sure are appreciative of the fact that you, you do have you have dug into these numbers. I hope you'll join us next week when we come back and talk more about this uh, particular fraud with Dr. Fareed Fada, and uh, and join us again. Sure. If you or someone you know has been the victim of a fraud or scam, call AARP's Fraud Watch Network Helpline at 877-908-3360. As always, thanks to my team of Scambusters, producers Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, our audio engineer Julio Gonzalez, and of course, my co-host Frank Abagnale. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. For The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson.
2: Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps seniors volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash yourmoment today.